May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. A paradigm shift. We have been looking at disorders of the gut-brain axis along with other disorders of central processing that fall under the umbrella of fibromyalgia. The medical model involves the use of a straightforward cause with a straightforward solution. Examples include type 1 diabetes with the loss of insulin by immune destruction of the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. The solution is insulin and it is life-saving. The discovery of anesthesia allowing surgeons to do life-saving procedures is another example. Penicillin to cure bacterial infections and antiviral medications put the once deadly HIV infection into a lifetime of remission. However, as successful as medicine has been using this medical model to treat conditions like these, it unfortunately fails to adequately manage those who are struggling under the umbrella of central pain processing disorders. The paradigm shift is to one of a more biopsychosocial model, the mind-body-spirit, that is so important, and the multimodal approach to helping those who are struggling. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am Dr. Michael Lenz. I am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. I have been a doctor for over 26 years. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine doctor, and a lifestyle medicine physician. My goal is to weave the best of lifestyle medicine along with medical management, helping those who are struggling their loved ones, as well as the medical community. All of the information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please discuss all your signs and symptoms with your own individual doctor or medical provider. And now on to this week's episode. So can you share a common case that you see as a child, kind of pre-puberty maybe in your clinic first, and then maybe a common adolescent type patient that you might see that for many listeners out there, if they're going through this or if their loved one is going through it, if they have a patient. So maybe starting with a child. Yeah. So a child, say 10-year-old girl that, that comes to us with abdominal pain. She's growing fine. She's eating fine. She's pooping fine, and but complaining of pain randomly throughout the day. That's one classic example. And I'm happy to share a little bit later maybe what we do with these cases or did with these cases. So that's one, one classic presentation, usually diffuse pain and in the absence of all those red flags that we had talked about earlier. For a typical adolescent, say a 16-year-old so it's female predominant. So we see a lot more females than males with these disorders. And with bloating, abdominal pain, intermittent constipation, feeling feeling the urge to go, but not being able to go, spending a lot of time in the bathroom, 
having that sense of incomplete evacuation, a lot of bloating that that is a very challenging symptom for a lot of a very uncomfortable symptom for a lot of patients. And spending a lot of time in the bathroom, sometimes hour at a t- hours at a time, unable to go to the to school because they're spending so much time in the bathroom. Been to a few doctors, it has done two or three cleanouts, right? So a lot of Miralax that makes you have diarrhea. So your colon is really cleaned out, but it didn't make the pain any better. But tried it again because on x-rays we saw some stool. So another clean out. And but it also didn't make things better. And another clean out and it didn't make things better. So we see that a lot, right? And so this would be a first patient typical for functional abdominal pain, and the second one typical for irritable bowel syndrome, constipation predominant, if say either a diarrhea or constipation predominant, depending on what they what the primary symptom is that they present with. And sometimes that goes back probably even years. I have a patient who's in that potty training about to turn four and mom's probably listening to the podcast now talking about a lot of that overlying, some anxiety features, that fear, and that gets into that cycle. And I think that talking with her about this, dad has irritable bowel constipation in his history and mom has also history of ADHD with past history of anxiety, told it was anxiety, and now as an adult recognizing there's an ADHD component. And then understanding that this young child developing this worry about having a bowel movement of how much pain. So then there's the holding because I don't want to have this. And it gets into this potential vicious cycle that can go back sometimes years around that potty training time. And then with that genetic susceptibility, right? It's seen often yeah. that family history that goes along. Yeah. And that's also to the point of the biopsychosocial model, when we think about vulnerabilities, right? It's not just early life events, but also family. So genetics, of course, is a big vulnerability factor. And for both of these examples that I just listed, it's very likely that there is a family history of not just a DGBI, but potentially a chronic pain condition, fibromyalgia, chronic back pain sometimes. And there's, in terms of research, there's two parts. One is the likely true genetic susceptibility or vulnerability, and then also pain modeling behaviors, right? If a child sees their parent in pain all the time, they may be more likely to experience pain. So that that also actually affects how we experience pain, right? So it's very complex. Yeah. And then can you talk about moving past puberty and what into adolescence, some how that typical kind of patients in adolescence? Some... Yeah. So like that, that, that second example, it was one that would be a typical 15, 16, 17 year old. Another classic symptom of functional dyspepsia that we see are patients that complain of early satiety, maybe some nausea, but or pain with eating or right after eating, significant bloating, right? Typical for functional dyspepsia. And that is particularly tricky because it often leads to avoiding to eat and weight loss which then can have adversely affect even the motility of the GI tract and then also start that vicious cycle. But in a lot of times, those are the patients that start restricting foods because they feel it's related to certain foods that, that they develop these symptoms. And we may see a patient who's been on a gluten-free diet, on a dairy-free diet, on a, what we call low FODMAP diet. So these are poorly digestible carbohydrates that that tend to be more gas producing and avoiding those foods. And so before you know it, they're barely eating anything out of to try to reduce these symptoms, which in some cases it helps, but a lot of times it doesn't. Yeah. And there's so many looking at treatment at the foundation is education, but then there are actionable steps and what kind of 
after the education, and it varies on what is going on, right, with the individual. And sometimes there's medication. Do much to have them keep a diary or journal of symptoms and what if you do, how long do you do it for and what kind of key areas do you have them make note of that you think are important for these syndromes or disorders? Yeah. Yeah, so in in terms of treatment, we truly address this in a multidisciplinary way. We, of course, have this specialty clinic that's a multidisciplinary clinic consisting of a GI doctor, a pain physician, a dietitian, a psychologist, a social worker, right? So we really have, we have a lot of help. We see a lot of patients that are very disabled by their symptoms, right? Not everybody has that luxury and not all patients need that degree of support. But the point is that, that when things get really bad, it literally can take a village, right? And I think that's what my point, that we need to address all these aspects in, in more or less, depending on, on, how, on what patients need. But the key aspects are, right, we want to treat the symptoms. And so that's where we use medications as one component, reducing that visceral hypersensitivity, treating, so aimed at reducing the visceral hypersensitivity. We also want to identify and reduce triggers, right? So if there are foods that are triggering symptoms, of course, we want to avoid them or find alternatives. If constipation is triggering pain, we want to make sure constipation is controlled without over-focusing on this is all related to constipation, right? Just as a few examples. If if somebody has celiac disease, obviously celiac disease needs to be treated with a gluten-free diet, right? Because that can trigger the symptoms even more, right? So those are the part that works on the gut. And then we always address also the brain, right? And anything that affects how we perceive pain there. And that's where psychological strategies come into play. That's why we have a psychologist as part of our team. And we really focus on a lot of things from cognitive behavioral therapies to to work on the thinking around pain, about pain, learning strategies to just overall reduce the arousal state, right? That is the activity level in the nervous system that's associated with chronic pain, trying to result muscle relaxation strategies, things like that. There's gut-directed hypnosis that some patients are candidates for. And then we also have ways that we teach patients sort of a healthy distraction, right? And to get back to the example of being in a parking lot with that super loud alarm ring going off, you might try to distract yourself, but it's really hard because it's so loud, right? And so we use strategies that kind of help us muffle our ears a little bit. We might hold our ears to try to reduce how loud that alarm signal is. And then over time, we can learn to get a move away from it and move our attention away from it until it can subside and get more and more quiet. And another strategy, for example, TENS unit, with which is this, you might be familiar with it, these little electrodes that you can put on the skin that sort of cause twitching. And the idea is that it, it, it distracts the brain away from the pain to a different type of signal. It's like rubbing your elbow when you hit your funny bone, right? You just get, you try to shift the pain perception away from that pain. And the, and so those are really important. And then anything that helps the overall well-being, like exercise, sleep hygiene is really important. And even more important because it's so counterintuitive is this idea of functioning, which is why we have a social worker that helps with school because school attendance, of course, is often affected, right? We have pain where we feel sick. And usually when you feel sick, you don't go to school because that's just because you need to rest. But in these pain disorders, right, it's the exact opposite, actually. We need to continue to function as hard as that can be, as, as much as we can in the DGBI world. We really try to encourage patients to continue functioning in their day-to-day life because once we withdraw from life, it only makes things even worse. 
it makes it harder and harder to get back into life. And that takes a lot of education also, right? How do we help parents to help their children to continue to function despite having these symptoms, right? And it shouldn't be you're having pain, but you need to school. It's you're having pain and you go to school, right? So that and reframing that, finding a way for kids to go back to school if they're missing a lot of school by doing a slow reintegration. Those are the kinds of things that that, that we focus on. And so truly multidisciplinary to whatever extent the patient needs it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. At her clinic, they are able to offer a multidisciplinary approach. I got a chance to talk to her after the interview, and she wishes he had more. They have therapists at the clinic, but they do not have pediatric psychiatrists integrated into the clinic yet. Unfortunately, most pediatricians and family practice doctors or just general pediatric gastroenterologists at your nearest pediatric children's hospital probably do not have this whole team approach that they have at Boston Children's Hospital. The doctors are often stuck trying to manage this by themselves. Often they do not have much training in regard to this because we've been trained more on the medical model. That's where the training in lifestyle medicine, as well as a pediatrician and an internist, has helped me be able to understand and work with my patients to help them work to conquer, to battle, to live the best life possible with fibromyalgia and related problems. Getting coaching is very important. There are going to be ups and there's going to be downs and keeping the long-range goal of trying to learn to live better and healthier. We often don't think of fibromyalgia as being cured but often put into remission or the symptoms suppressed and have the least amount of disruption in your life as possible considering your unique situation, your unique social background and challenges and opportunities, as well as your certain genetic risks, as well as looking at the role of medications. That's so important, overlapping with when we talk about fibromyalgia, is what's frustrating is there isn't one intervention by itself, yeah. that usually is going to cure it. It's not a urinary tract infection. It's not taking out the appendix. It's not treating the success you have with inflammatory bowel, where you can have relatively great success to really shut down inflammation with a lot of the biological agents compared to that quick, the more complicated success. And sometimes interventions that are good can at the same time be equally bad. I encourage eating a much more plant-predominant whole food, plant-based diet. But if you take somebody on five grams of fiber and put them on 50 grams, they aren't going to have the bio microbiome to handle that and they'll produce more gas and they'll have more pain, but gradually working towards that and recognizing over time. Often when we're in pain, we go for those calorie dense foods that are low in fiber and actually temporarily pacify us, but actually make us worse. I asked Dr. Beinvogel to share what medications she typically finds useful and helpful for dealing with these disorders of the gut-brain interaction. 
Yeah. So, you know, again, depending on where in the GI tract the most, sure. most predominant symptoms are. So anything related to eating early satiety, things like that. There's some great over-the-counter actually supplements like FDGuard for a functional dyspepsia. It's basically like essential oils in a capsule that actually help relax the stomach. The same for the colon IB guard that you may What is the first there. one? FT or F- what? FD guard. FD. F- like functional dyspepsia. Oh, guard. FD guard. And yeah. you can find that. Okay. Yep, you can get it. Target, Walgreens, all of those. Okay. You know, so that acts in the stomach. The other one is IB guard, is basically peppermint oil. And yep. it helps relax the colon. Other examples are spasmodics, like Nulev dicyclamine that just help reduce cramping. We use laxatives, obviously, and irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, but very mindfully. And because of the hypersensitivity, a lot of times the more common ones like Miralax, the bloating that can sometimes be a side effect can actually make things worse. Or stimulant laxatives like Senna or Docolax, right? Bisocodal can sometimes cause normal sort of cramping to move stool along can in somebody with IBS can actually cause a lot of pain. And there's some newer now agents out there that are prescription laxatives for that are on the market for a constipation in adults. And we're starting to use them in the adolescent and even pediatric world with very good success to reduce some of that hypersensitivity and also treat constipation. But it's always a fight because they're not approved in children. And so it's always a fight, of course, to get them approved, but and usually prescribed by some specialists, right? But we use those. Periactin or ciproheptadine is an older antihistamine that can help relax the stomach that sometimes it works well for functional dyspepsia. And then depending on addressing the pain, once we reduce all the triggers or avoid all the triggers and identify those, sometimes we use things like amitriptyline, gabapentin to really also treat, to really calm down those nerves, which I used in a lot of other chronic pain conditions too. So what was the non-FDA approved in children medication you talked about that they are using adults and helps with constipation. Or- so there's there are a couple of them. So ametiza, okay, sure, is one of them it has a side effect sometimes of nausea. You have to be mindful if somebody's already having nausea not to use that. At linzes or linaclotide is another one that actually works very well at a low dose to treat some constipation, but also to treat that hypersensitivity. And then the newest kid on the block, if you will, is Motegrity or Procalipride that has treats constipation, but also has a beneficial effect to the upper tract motility. And so that, that can be helpful, especially if somebody's struggling with nausea and constipation, but it's on the market for constipation. And those are partial improvements, right? They're not reversing a hundred percent. These are, these are all things, these are medications, right? This is the tier of medications that we use to, to treat symptom or to treat triggers but that's just one part. I can't emphasize enough that this always needs to all be, all these treatments are under the umbrella of this conceptual understanding of chronic pain or of disorders of gut-brain interaction, the whole model. That the problem is the pain signaling and we have to get it from multiple sides. So yes, we use medications, but I, those are most likely not going to fix the problem. It's just one part. And sure. it's like a leg with four, sorry, a, a chair with four legs if one's missing, it's not going to be stable. And so we need the psychological strategies. We need to calm the nervous system. And we also use medications. Yeah, it's such a complex and very interesting. I find it very fascinating how all of these interact. And it's nice to see when people who've struggled so long get better and they're functioning. And then as they go out through the rest of their life, they're just aware. I need to exercise regularly. I need to keep a regular schedule. 
I don't do well as maybe move into college and adult life when I drink too much and I get hungover or I eat pizza and french fries and my gut hurts. And part of that insight often overlaps so much with migraines. Uh, migraines are commonly accepted. We don't have somebody has classic migraine symptoms. Now it's been around and understood so long that people go, okay, I know somebody with migraines. Yeah. A lot of times the people who are struggling with this don't have the education that this is in a sense like should be accepted like a migraine. There's a lot of factors that play a role. I think where it seems like it comes out of the blue 75% of the time, like you said, when you dig deeper, there's often cracks that are going on. And then the final exam or the breakup or something happens, or sometimes it's simply the lack of something. Like I have patients who will have symptoms when they're in, when they stop playing their sport. So they're in between sports and they are doing soccer and then they take winter off and then they swim and then they don't exercise more and they start getting more symptoms and maybe they're eating worse or all of these play a role. And sometimes having that your journal can offer some insight. Oh, I did better over the summer when I was sleeping better and my schedule was better and the routine and no doubt having school hours that don't always match up with reality cause yeah. more stress and people are much more sensitive. And then getting the family on board. I interviewed Dr. Shayette, who's a pediatric neurologist. And sometimes when this has been going on so long, the parents may be split and wondering, she's just completely faking it. And the other one may be sympathetic. And to have both people on board, we want you to go to school, but we know it's a challenge. We're not just going to say, suck it up, buttercup. And yet yes. it's recognizing that these are challenges, yes. working through and helping. So much good insight. I think everybody who's listening here has learned so much in so many different ways and so much more to learn. Any last thoughts at all that you'd like to share with the listeners? I just, you know, what, want to emphasize that I understand, we understand, and hopefully the medical community also will continue to understand that pain and symptoms related to disorders of gut-brain interaction are real and that it's not in your head, it's not all anxiety. These are real symptoms but we have to look at all of you to identify what turns them on and what helps reduce those symptoms. And that's why it's not one size fits all. And that's why it's not one quick pill to fix it. Fortunately or unfortunately, we really have to look at the individual and that hope that the medical community will continue to learn about this as well to help. Yeah. Thanks so much. There's so much more research. And I think one of the challenges in looking in this, doing research, which is multimodal, is hard to quantitate, right? How do you measure CBT therapy? How do you measure some of these that are going on? It gets pretty complicated to measure and do research. I asked Dr. Beinvogel if she's working on any specific research in the area of disorders of gut-brain interaction. Yeah, one interesting thing that we have looked at is patients that come to us in our multidisciplinary clinic that have been through a lot of doctors, have had symptoms for a long time and have gone through a lot of testing, sometimes even surgeries, that within one or two visits of this more holistic approach or multidisciplinary approach, and a lot of education has helped reduce their symptoms and improve their functioning. And even though a lot of the actual interventions that we did in terms of medic medications that we prescribed, things that we recommended, they had already tried before. But under this understanding of what we just spent the last hour or so talking about, it takes on a whole other effect or it works better 
if you understand this disorder of what you have, right, that you're not a mystery, that it might be complicated because it's multifactorial, but it's not a mystery. We know what's going on and we need to treat that. And that has really helped patients. So we've shown that. Other research that we are doing is looking at different physiological mechanisms that may play a role in triggering. So looking at, for example, bilacid metabolism and how that may affect GI symptoms. So trying to also delineate some of these underlying mechanisms that are playing a role. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Part of what inspired me to start writing a book six, seven years ago was I had a two-page handout. And like most doctors out there, they don't have a multidisciplinary clinic. And even if they did, the wait list to get in, you can't see everybody. You're seeing the worst of the worst and you probably have to screen a fair amount. But I had a two-page handout, then a 20-page handout. And in 20 or 30 or even 45 minutes to try to explain this, the second chapter in my book is entitled The Buy-In. And I really recognizing that you have to buy into this concept. And that's part of read, listen, digest to what we're talking about here. And then when it starts to click, you go, okay, that does make sense. And, and this is important, but if you're walking a half a mile and then you try jogging for five miles with your sister who's in cross country and you feel terrible, that's not the proper <laughs> use of exercise, recognizing a, a gradual approach often and, and much more consistency. And with that, it's so excited. I'd love to maybe have you on in the future when you get to hear more about the research and it's exciting to learn more in being around academic minded people like yourself that are helping. And I know all the listeners out there who are going through these problems and know people are going through these are going to feel validated that all of this is real. And this is quite common and for not just in general practice, but it's just common in the world. And I think that often was dismissed is now taken more seriously. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Dr. Beate Beinvogel. There's so many pearls of wisdom that I learned and hopefully you did as well. But if you want to leave a mental picture, I think the table that has four legs in order for it to stand up is a great picture for you to meditate and contemplate as you look at approaching treatment and management of these gut-brain disorders as well as fibromyalgia. If you don't have all of them working well, your table is going to fall over and if you don't have all of these working well, your gut is going to hurt more. You're going to have more chronic pain and chronic fatigue. I hope you have enjoyed it as well. If you have, please leave a five-star rating, a review, hit the like or follow button, and share this with others. That way, more people will be able to easily find the podcast. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the book, consider looking at that as well as the website conqueringyourfibromyalgia.com. I also have blogs on there as well. Until next week, go Team Fibro! Mm -hmm.